0: You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex
1: podcast collective, visit PleasurePodcasts.com. Sluts and
0: Scholars. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a sexologist and marriage and family therapist. And I'm Simone, and I'm a law
2: student and total slut. This week, we are joined by Dr. Eric Sprenkel. He is an associate professor of psychology and co-director of the Sexuality Studies Program at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Oh my God, did I pronounce that right?
1: (laughs) Close, Mankato.
2: Mankato. He's also a licensed psychologist like Nicoletta, and a certified sex therapist at the Minnesota Sexual Health Institute. He lives in Minneapolis. I know how to pronounce that one.
0: With his <laughs> wife and their two cats, Lucy and Mina. Welcome, Dr. Sprenkel. Thanks for having me. Hi. Also, I love you, Simone, but I'm not a licensed psychologist. <laughs> oh, fuck. You're an MFT.
1: <laughs> Damn it. It's okay.
0: In it's my it's mind, hard to keep track of like, all the different things. Right. In my mind, you're already health. a doctor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your research that you're doing. I know that you are doing so many different things that we love, including like destigmatizing sex work. But tell us about some of the current things you're researching.
1: Um, Well, right now I'm just wrapping up a study that I was involved with with SWAT Minneapolis. And it was a needs assessment to look at workers in strip clubs with their uh, working and labor conditions. Um, Because a little bit of a backstory with that, the city of Minneapolis was going to implement some new legislation that was going to be increased regulation on the industry that wasn't going to be worker-centered. We got them to kind of pump the brakes a little bit um, before enacting that legislation, saying that, hey, let's do this needs assessment to see what the workers actually want, if you're actually interested, and having this uh, be worker-centered. And so we did surveys and interviews uh, with current workers, and then now we're in the process of presenting all that information to the city to try to get them to enact legislation that would actually reflect what the workers want to improve there labor conditions as opposed to what these random NGOs uh, think that workers want in strip clubs.
2: What elements um, of legislation do workers want? I just was at this rebellious lawyers conference conference at Yale yesterday. Um, yeah. I'm a law student, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. there was this incredible panel with five sex workers, uh, Laura Lee, Madeline Marlowe, thought scholar Supreme Bay, um, mm-hmm. K. and uh, Derosio. Anyway, it was just an incredible panel. We were talking about this like legislative assault on sex workers, basically. So I'm curious, based yeah. on your mm-hmm. needs assessment, um, what what do they want? Why should we stop fucking well, telling them what they want <laughs> and just listen? Right,
1: yeah, the big thing was um, in relation to um, mandatory and required like house fees and fines, uh, especially tip outs for management. Um, and so right now it's just getting into like the legal aspects of when there are independent contractors. What are their rights to to maintain all tips that they receive? From customers or clients, as opposed to having to tip out all these other paid employees, and oftentimes salaried employees, and oftentimes management at the clubs. Um, So it's really kind of focusing on that, mostly.
0: I think the the big thing that you said that was important is asking the sex workers, which is like, what a novel idea. Let's include the sex workers on legislation, but usually... Legislation that is made of any kind, whether it be reproductive health or for sex workers, is made by other people who don't do that work or it doesn't apply to.
1: Absolutely, and that's that was the case here at the beginning. The, the regulations were really focusing on this belief that the strip clubs in the city were just like hotbeds of HIV and trafficking, and the regulations were going to focus on that. Um, largely, um, the initial push was to get rid of any type of private or VA, VIP spacing. Uh, spaces uh, within the within the clubs, and workers were like, they don't. We don't want this. Um, and so, doing our needs assessment really kind of focused on, okay, what are actual the needs? If there isn't this concern about HIV and trafficking in these VIP spaces, what could actually improve labor conditions?
2: I'm so glad that that you're doing this needs assessment, and obviously you're in tune with the community. But I. I just, I think it's so interesting, this, like, umbrella of trafficking that sex mm-hmm. work gets shoved under. Um, and I right. think it's, like, obviously a concerted conservative effort to, like— you know, place morality values on society and eradicate legal sex work, obviously. Um, but yeah. it's, it's such a bummer at, at this panel that I was at, Kyle Lynn, who was someone that I forgot to mention at the beginning, she said that sex workers have this responsibility to convince legislators that they actually want to do their job in a way that yeah. no other
0: workers have to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a huge double standard for sure.
0: And how many people actually want to do their job all the time? Yeah, (laughs) like that doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're being trafficked. Like there's times where I'm like, I don't want to go to work today. Like I like being a therapist overall, Mm -hmm. but some days I like, I'm like, ah, you know, I'd rather just stay in bed. So it's, uh, I don't know. It's just like, why do you have to spend so long convincing people? It's
2: terrible. Like as a law student,
0: most Mm -hmm. of my days are shitty. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be a professor for free. So this isn't volunteer work for me.
0: Uh, you said something earlier that some of our listeners might not know, but you said swap S W O P. What is swap for people who don't know?
1: The Sex Workers Outreach Project. It's a national organization in the United States, and then various cities have their own local chapters. And Minneapolis is one of them.
2: And how did you get involved with this?
1: Um, primarily through my wife, who is the former vice president of Swap USA.
2: Oh, so did so you two? The connection. <laughs> Oh, okay. So, how did so did this like coincide with your research into like sex and sexuality, or uh, did that come first?
1: Um, our relationship came first, and then be, she became involved um, with SWAP, uh, both locally and then nationally. And then then my research started uh, once she became affiliated with some of these organizations. She's always a co author on my projects.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, I was checking out some of the rest of your research and you talk about sexually explicit media. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like besides saying like, I know it when I see it, what is sexually <laughs> explicit media?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't have a good definition for that either. I, I joke about that when I lecture <laughs> on uh, any type of commercial sexuality uh, within the media. In some of my classes of, that was a Supreme Court justice's um, you know, comment on determining what is like, Obscene Obscenity. pornography, yeah, just like I know it when I see it, and so yeah, I try to broaden it out as as much as possible to include anything that has some type of sexual depiction or description, not necessarily for the purpose of arousal. So that can include like you know mainstream media that we consume for non sexually arousing purposes, just for comedic purposes or dramatic purposes, whatever. Um, just to kind of put that all under the same umbrella, and so we're not teasing apart what is kind of like quote-unquote smut versus this is art and this is entertainment it's just it's all kind of talking about sex and then I think the rest kind of goes into our more our own moral judgments of what we find uh, that has taste or class and all these other kind of like moral-laden words
0: what are people afraid that it's going to do to the world I mean I think people play, you know, violent video games and watch violent mm-hmm. movies, but when it comes to sex they're worried that it's going to, you know, ruin adolescence or ruin children. Like what are some of the moral things that you see people worrying about?
1: Yeah, it's it's always very abstract and that's what got me in- interested in that research. Uh this was way back when I was in grad school, almost uh, 13 years ago now, something like that. Okay. Um <laughs> Yeah, um, and that was right at the time with uh, Janet Jackson's Super Bowl performance and the whole like (sighs) Nipplegate kind of controversy conspiracy that that happened. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and everybody had that argument of like, what about all the kids that were watching it? Think about the children. And I was like, well, what is actually the concern? Um, yeah. that, okay, they, they saw a breast, um, partially couple covered nipple. Um, so but it what, was very covered. Right?
2: That was a giant decorative sun on top of the nipple. Yeah, you could hardly a... I mean, you could see nipple, but no areola, really.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. So there was definitely a lot of coverage <laughs> there. And even looking through the academic literature on sexually explicit media effects, and so we can kind of gauge a little bit of, okay, what are we concerned about based on what is being measured as, like, dependent variables. Um, and usually just anything with adolescence is just onset of sexual activity and number of partners. And then sometimes more recently, not recently, like maybe in the 90s, um, looking at different health-related factors like exposure to STIs or STI acquisition and transmission. So it, was, it is really just about kids having sex. Um, and then I remember when I presented some research as a grad student, it's just like a, a poster session. And I had one of those things as like my DV, my dependent kind of variable in my study of um, kind of like age of like first um, sexual activity. Um, oh, no, it was something like, yeah, it was something similar to that. And I remember a researcher coming up to me and saying like, why is that a bad thing? And that was like my first exposure to like really kind of thinking differently about the the leading narrative of how we think about adolescent sexuality and some of these dependent variables in these studies that we just automatically assume are 100% negative and unhealthy. Whereas just we already made kind of an assumption prior to the study being mm-hmm. starting about what is healthy versus unhealthy uh, for adolescents. In short, to answer your, your question, I have really no idea specifically what some of the concerns are other than kids are going to start having sex uh, at, at some age if they're exposed <laughs> to sexually explicit material and there's Uh-oh. not research to, to demonstrate that causality.
2: I'm curious about your like journey towards this unhealthy to healthy or just like not even placing a value judgment about healthy or unhealthiness on teens having sex. Like how was that? Like, so this one researcher gave you this comment and then what happened next?
1: Um, It just really kind of gave me pause as to what, um, if I am going to study sexually explicit material and media, um, what am I looking at in terms of the effects that it can cause. So the dependent variables, what I'm actually measuring in, in the participants. And does that really matter? And so it just kind of gave me um, a little bit of um, a different perspective of what we should be measuring with adolescent sexuality or even adult sexuality.
2: I'm just curious what we are measuring. Like, is it protection? Is it you know emotional comfort Ability to communicate, I'm just curious.
1: Um, Yeah, a lot of times still with adolescent research, it's still focused on what's very reflective in any quote-unquote sex ed that they get is STI transmission and um, unintended pregnancy. Those are like the two outcomes that still seem to dominate any kind of discussion on adolescent sexuality. It's Mm -hmm. just those uh, two factors. Without looking at other things in terms of like motivation that could be for you know, pleasure or satisfaction or to get other types of needs met, um, those things are still way too, uh, I think, taboo to be kind of like the, the leading um, kind of goals of sexuality research, especially with adolescents. We're just now starting to see that a little bit more with adult sexuality and research, focusing more on satisfaction and pleasure. I think we're many years away from that still being you know, focus with adolescents.
0: I imagine it's hard to define too what even means like first sexual experience because the, the definition of sex has expanded um, so much. I think mm-hmm. as of late that it could be pleasuring yourself, it could be you know just hand stuff, it could be it could be anything really. And so, how do you even quantify that?
1: Exactly, and that's uh, that's really kind of a, a really interesting area that I like to get into is just like understanding definitions and that we don't have. Universal operational definitions for so many things within sexuality and sexual health. Of like, just, so if you have on your questionnaire for your or your survey of when was the last time you had sex or how old were you mm-hmm. when you first had sex, you're going to have you know if you have a hundred participants, possibly a hundred different definitions of how they are interpreting that question. Um, so if you actually want to ask about penile-vaginal intercourse, say that in your question instead of just mm-hmm. sex. If you're asking about oral-genital. Um, touching or stimulation. Ask that specifically. And that's, right. I
0: think there was an article <laughs> recently that, um, that was saying like, you know, kids are having less sex than ever or something. And it was like, they didn't even, in the research, they didn't even define what sex meant.
1: Right. Yeah. There's just an, this, this assumption about what it is. Um, that we're all on the same page and we certainly aren't. And that's very similar to the trafficking uh, discourse and narratives too, saying anytime I see the word sex trafficking, I have no idea actually what is being talked about. Is Mm -hmm. it adult consensual sex work? Is it promotion of sex work by a third party? Is it actually force fraud or coercion um, of another within the sex industry? I don't know, because everything gets conflated. And that's a project that I'm supervising right now for my undergrads and one of my grad students. They're looking at the academic literature, at least within psychology, of how sex trafficking has been defined um, because... What we know about sex trafficking from the academic literature, is it even useful um, based on how they the researchers are defining and conceptualizing what sex trafficking is? And as anticipated, what we have so far is that there are a lot of different definitions. And so we're not really talking about the same thing even in academia.
0: What I... I'm super curious about is obviously you share your your research on social media, but you're also very like open and transparent um, mm-hmm. in like some of your own beliefs about this stuff. Yeah. I, I'm curious how that affects your your research and your work as a as a therapist too.
1: Um, well, it affects my work as a researcher because I, I want to do research that um, will have some type of positive impact, and I think as researchers we have that. Bias and whether or not we're using it toward or against those that we are studying, and so the sex work literature in academia is a good example of that. Because if you look at the, um, you know, if you do a literature review on how sex work has been treated by academics, it's usually under like the keywords of deviancy um, or some other type of you know psychopathology that they're automatically assuming that workers in the the sex industry are unhealthy in some way we just need to figure out how they are unhealthy or how they became unhealthy Um, so that's a bias against um, um, the researchers participants or those that they are studying I try to just kind of flip that narrative of like okay how can this research best serve the ones that we are studying and so it just kind of makes different assumptions um, going in.
0: Yeah, I think therapy, at least from, I don't know what you think, but at least in the past, you know, we were supposed to be like more Freudian and like a a blank slate and not giving a lot of our opinions. But now it seems like therapy is transitioning to a place where there is a demand for a social justice component
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: in the realm of mental health. And so not just including that in like one on one therapy sessions with clients, but also in whatever power you have in academia or research.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, mental health therapy clients or patients are seeking that out more, too, of wanting a therapist that aligns more with their worldview as the way to be understood and validated and supported and not be pathologized just based upon mm-hmm. some beliefs that they have that isn't necessarily like pathological uh, from a psychological perspective.
2: Did you intend to get such a social media presence when you started?
1: <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I think I've been on Twitter for uh, seven or eight years, and I was just playing and around. Now with you have it. almost
2: twenty thousand followers. So this, I is, know. Yeah, just, yeah, want, our, just nice. want our listeners to know we're not talking about <laughs> <laughs> so popular.
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's gotten bigger, absolutely, over the over the years. And I don't know. I, it's always been just a writing exercise for me and in, in terms of using the medium, Twitter specifically. And it's why I haven't really been that great at using effectively Facebook or Instagram or anything else. Um, just because I, I like the writing, con, um, how it has to be confined on Twitter to, mm-hmm. a, what was it originally, like 140 characters. I like that challenge of really trying to be clear and concise, somewhat witty, um, within that short amount of character space. Um, and even doubling that, you know, still, you know, keeps um, that thought process need, needs to be confined still. Um, so I've always enjoyed that exercise just from a general writing perspective. Um, but yeah, and then just kind of finding my quote unquote brand of like what I want to talk about on there and just kind of keeping to that as, as best as possible, whether it's talking about sex education, sexual health, sex workers' rights, cats. Marilyn Manson, mm-hmm. Satanism, anything—that's <laughs> all kind of with <laughs> under my uh, wheelhouse right now. Topics I enjoy.
2: Um, well, there's only we've talked about most of those things on this podcast, but not Satanism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. let's hear about that. <laughs>
1: sure. Yeah. What do you want to know?
2: <laughs> well, how? First of all, how does it? How does it manifest on your social media, and also like. What is Satanism? I don't know. I have so many questions. Nicoletta, you probably have a more precise one, so maybe you should ask it.
0: <laughs> well, I was, before we actually started the interview, I was talking to Dr. Sprinkle about this recent uh, documentary I watched um, called Hail Satan, question mark. Um, and <laughs> everyone should try to find it slash watch it, I think, because it's super enlightening. But I think a lot of people have used it against you Mm -hmm. Um, on the internet being like this Satanist researcher and like how horrible, um, so I wonder like, do you even identify as a Satanist or is it just like, do you just let people call you that and you're like, yeah, whatever, fuck it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I'm an atheist first and foremost, um, and which atheistic Satanists are. Um, and then that's like with the Satanic Temple. I mean, they're an atheist organization that, um, Mm -hmm. That doesn't actually believe in a, a literal devil or Satan, um, so it's all still a promotion of secular uh, values in our society and secular beliefs. Um, it's just using satanic imagery as a way to kind of kind of push more for pluralism um, in the United States to, to challenge and counter Christian supremacy and privilege. That if you want to be open to, you know, religious freedom. Um, that's for all religions and not just yours specifically. And so I think what the satanic temple do, is doing right now is um, a really good challenge to that kind of Christian supremacy that we have uh, in this country. Um, so yeah, so on a, on a personal level, um, I've always been interested in like dark and, and morbid things. So it, it just kind of goes along hand in hand with that for me personally sometimes I shy away from that label, um, more so for like imposter syndrome, because if we look at even atheistic religious components, um, I have the aesthetic piece, I have, at least with the atheistic Satanism, I have kind of like that social justice piece, um, I don't have the community piece, and that's just more of a personality characteristic, I'm more of a, I like to call it a lone goat within uh, Satanism. Um, I, I don't have that need to be communal uh, with other like-minded individuals uh, surrounding mm. this, and I, I don't have any like um, rituals um, uh, surrounding this uh, religion. Uh, either. Um, So for those two pieces that I I lack, I I, I sometimes shy away from uh, self-identifying that way. Uh, But I I don't care if other people call me that. and Usually I'm being called that by those who believe in an actual devil and think I'm a devil worshiper. And so that just kind of, you know, just leaves a smirk on my face uh, when I see like a headline like Satanic Professor says X, Y, and Z. Like, oh, I I think I know what they mean by Satanic Professor, especially when there's a photo of me with uh, Photoshop devil horns, so it's like okay, I, I know where you're <laughs> going, <laughs> and that's amusing. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I fucking love like the the reclaiming of like religion that the that the Satanic Temple does. I don't mm-hmm. know if um, maybe you've heard about this, but in Missouri, like the a Satanist challenged this Missouri abortion con- consent law. Yeah, um, <laughs> and it was ultimately she lost the challenge, but right. basically saying that like the RFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so she was like, the Satanic Temple uh, dictates that fetal tissue is part of a woman's body, not a separate living person. And mm-hmm. when she wanted to get an abortion, she was forced to hear that like the life of each human begins at conception, and mm-hmm. that she's supposed she had to be told abortion will terminate the life of a separate, unique living being. Mm-hmm. But she failed to prove it, apparently. But I think right. she's appealing. But yeah. So it's just really great work that the Satanic Temple is doing. It's not just like this like ritualistic, all black wearing thing, though. I'm sure Nicoletta <laughs> loves that parts of it. Mm-hmm. It also does like really interesting like <laughs> politic political, not only religious freedom, but like freedom from religion as well.
1: Which Absolutely. Is really cool. Yeah, that political piece is really great, especially any time that uh, a city government or even a state government wants to erect some type of Christian monument on, on public ground. And that's when the satanic temple steps up and says, okay, that's fine. You can have your 10 commandments, but we want our Baphomet statue right next to it. <laughs> um, just to show that you're not, you know, having favoritism toward uh, Christianity and Christians in the state. Um, and that's usually when uh, the state or local government will like back off, be like, okay, no religious monuments on on public ground. Um, <laughs> and that's a win in and of itself too.
0: Exactly. Sure. That That's what... <laughs> Without spoilers, that was what the Hail Satan question mark documentary was. Mm -hmm. Um, It was about a a variety of different things, but dispelling some myths that it's not just like people in black doing like, you know, murder rituals. (laughs) I mean, maybe, you know, sometimes a little bit in a sexy way, but (laughs) it's more like that that Lucifer was like the ultimate original rebel. And so it's sort of like we want to continue challenging um, society and the... Kind of monotheistic um, Christian approach in this country and being more open to, to diversity and different options and mm-hmm. social justice work.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean,
2: I think there's a very obvious clear link between like a secular society and like a sexually educated society. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about that more recently. I, th- I forget who it was. He was a therapist someplace that asked that question. Uh, to one of my tweets uh, within the past couple of months of like, what are secular sexual values? Because I'm always, um, you know, challenging Christian sexual values, not for them being anything inherently wrong or unhealthy, but applying those values universally, and especially politically, uh, is what I challenge and push back against. Um, so then to kind of fill that void of like, okay, what are these secular sexual values that maybe we could be promoting instead? And the best that I could come up with, because we kind of went back and forth a little bit, um, and a lot of the conversation was more focused just on sexual health, I think, from more of a like a therapist perspective of maybe what we would encourage our, our clients or patients to be engaging in for their optimal health. But I don't think that's necessarily related to just general sexual values, because uh, that may be engaging in behaviors as long as you're consenting and knowing Uh, potential risks that may not be the greatest for your overall sexual health. Um, And should there be room um, for that? Um, So really what I was thinking is in terms of sexual secular values would be knowledge, um, consent, and bodily autonomy. And I really haven't been able to add any more to that without it being kind of prescriptive. Like, no, if you want to be a sexually healthy person, do X, Y, or Z. So just kind of focusing more on the virtues of knowledge, consent, and bodily autonomy. I think that gives Mm. individuals a a huge degree of uh, freedom to engage in sexual behavior and have a sexuality that is best for them in that moment.
0: Speaking of consent, it seems like you got a lot of pushback recently um, for a tweet about uh, God and the Me Too movement. Um, Mm -hmm. For folks who aren't aware of that, can you... Can you talk a little bit about what happened?
1: Yeah, so that came with, I was prepping for a lecture on sexual consent and coercion. And part of a thought exercise I was going to have is, can you have consensual uh, sexual behavior, um, can a vampire have sexual uh, consent with um, a human? Um, so just a ridiculous kind of just thought exercise, but looking at power. <laughs> but di- like, differences.
2: but like, also super duper hot. So carry on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in my fantasy, if they right. can. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. So, um, so that was really just getting at looking at power differences in relationships and how that can affect a person's ability to consent. Um, because we we focus a lot on you know enthusiastic consent and yes means yes, but I also like to look at. Um, can this person say no, and that brings up the power differences. So they may be saying a yes, but due to the power difference, that yes may be coerced, um, not explicitly. And so that's where really what that was coming from, at least for my class thought exercise of like the different the power differences with vampires and humans, um, with age and strength and the ability to like hypnotize or glamour. So all those things could you know, influence the the human's ability to consent. And so then I just took that to um, a larger level and seasonal because I tweeted this during um, December intentionally, um, focused on God and the um, uh, Virgin Mary conception of Jesus. And then just asked, due to that power difference, I don't think there's any um, um, scenario that that would be considered uh, consensual. And I wasn't even Mm -hmm. talking about necessarily sexual behavior because I think that was a lot of uh, the comments uh, that I read was like, well, God didn't physically have sex with Mary. It's like, well, no, I didn't suggest that. That's why I didn't say like they had sex. I was just talking about consent in a broader sense of the word, Um, the ability to say yes and the ability to say no and how that couldn't exist between gods and mortals. And of course... Because I tweeted that in December and said Happy Holidays intentionally instead of Merry Christmas <laughs> just to aggravate people even worse as this godless, godless commie professor that they think I am, which I am, but um, I, like, I like filling that stereotype sometimes. Um, yeah, that uh, that caught some people's uh, attention, <laughs> and yeah, I, I stand by it. I, I was just pointing out power differences and how they uh, exist in in real life of how. It's not only unethical, but also illegal in a lot of jurisdictions for a psychologist to have any type of sexual relationship with their patient, even if the patient says yes, because of that power difference. And so Mm -hmm. I just took that power difference and extrapolated to this infinity, essentially, of looking at gods versus uh, mortals.
2: Just even outside of the power imbalance, like, even even if... She could have said yes to God and God, like, Mm -hmm. fucked her and it was fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. Like, she still didn't acquiesce to pregnancy, and that is a violation of consent as well, which I I, I just I I keep hearing about, like, still, I hear, still hear about people getting stealthed, which I think is Mm -hmm. just like so horrible when you consent to like sexual intercourse with someone and then they remove the condom without your knowledge. I don't know. It's Mm -hmm. just, it reminds me of that too. I just so fucked up.
1: Anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And consent isn't just like blanket consent to like whatever you want uh whenever. Uh, it's very specific to a specific act.
0: I just never thought I would be talking ab- or questioning like is God stealthing on the podcast and I'm really <laughs> glad that we are.
1: <laughs> right, and that was I think
0: God 100% fucking
2: stealthed Mary. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're right. And that and that was Kind of the only embarrassing thing that I had as a result of kind of like all that backlash from that one tweet was that I didn't want people to think I was seriously wanting a conversation about God and Mary and ethics, (laughs) because that comes from more of like a theistic kind of belief, like, oh, these individuals really do exist, so we need to examine their behavior very closely. It's like, no, 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 this (laughs) is just a thought exercise. I don't believe in any of this, so quit quoting Bible passages at me, please
0: but it sounds like you probably i mean not that you are inviting people i don't want to say that like you consented to like people attacking you on social media but i'm sure that like you know that your presence in you know really fires some certain people up
1: sure yeah i'm i'm very it is my and it's always been like past seven or eight years how long i ever been on on twitter it's always been um you know dr sprankle is my handle it's always been my professional identity it's never been a personal like Private account, so I've always been very, very intentional with every word that I choose, um, and so yeah, there's there's not going to be just like off the cuff kind of remarks of like, oops, yeah, I really shouldn't have said that. Um, I wasn't expecting to get that kind of reaction. It's like no, that especially that tweet that was that was very intentionally worded and intentionally provocative.
0: Do you, you is- think you feed on the hate? I'm sorry. Do you think you feed on the hate? Um, sometimes
1: with that one, it was a little much, um, like after it was mentioned on Tucker Carlson, like I I watched that segment after the fact and yeah, they were just kind of poking fun of it. It was no big deal. But, um, yeah, Tucker Carlson's fan base is quite uh, a rabid bunch of, uh, um, fellas. Um, so yeah, it was just a a lot at once that I've never experienced. Um, but once that kind of calmed down and kind of going, kind of looking back, it was like, yeah, that was kind of fun.
2: I just realized that the Pope responded to you. What?
1: Oh, really? I didn't know that. Well, I need to put that in my, <laughs> my yearly. Maybe review the for I don't the know.
2: You, you re, maybe it wasn't a direct response to you, but it seems super. Like I don't know. Like I, I was just like looking through your tweets and, um, you know, at Pontifex said with her yes, Mary became the most influential woman. And in, oh, I guess you were responding. I take it back. But anyway. Oh, actually,
1: yeah, yeah. I saw that too. Yeah, I, I didn't that know that. was a if,
2: fucking insane <laughs> tweet, though.
1: Right, yeah. For those <laughs> who don't know
2: what I'm talking about, the Pope tweeted with her quote unquote yes, that's actually in there, Mary became the most influential woman in history. Without social networks, she became the first influencer. The influencer <laughs>
1: of right, God. Yeah. That's supposed to be a hip, <laughs> a hip, a hip Pope. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's but yeah, so that was, that was pretty ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah. And I think I just poked fun of him using yes in quotation marks. I was like, yeah, I agree with that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if that was in response to any of the conversations that were being ha- uh, held on right-wing media about um, Mary's consent or not. But yeah, I thought that was amusing too.
0: Um, why do you think it's important to include secularism in your you know, sex education?
1: Um, well, one thing that like, I... I just do that through social media. Um, my in-person classes, and that was, I think, the only thing that kind of got under my skin a little bit with some of the criticism I get from what mm-hmm. I tweet is that I'm up on this soapbox, like in my classes doing this. Um, and that, that's not the case at all. I, I, I teach from just a value-free, judgment-free perspective. Here are the facts, make decisions for yourself. Um, whether you're an atheist or a fundamentalist Christian, like, have your sexuality congruent with those values and beliefs. Um, that's my like teaching stance, and that, that's the, my approach to teaching sexual health in these professional settings. So I just politicize it more um, on Twitter. Um, But yeah, so personally and politically, I I think it is very important um, to include secular values within conversations about sex ed and sexual health. Um, Just like I was saying earlier, because so much of what is a controlling factor for sexual freedom and sexual rights and even sexual health, at least in the United States, is what Christianity thinks is sexually healthy or sexually right versus wrong. And Mm -hmm. I just push back against that
0: have you had any religious uh students in your classes that have pushed back a little bit more after maybe like seeing your social media or um i mean maybe they wouldn't take your classes but i hope that they would
1: right i, I think that's a little bit of a, a self-selection bias that i experienced because my classes are electives um mm-hmm. unless you are a sexuality studies minor Um, in which that's even going to be, you know, selective, (laughs) right. Of of like, who's going to be, you know, having this as your minor, if you're not already comfortable somewhat with the topic. So I I see that primarily in my classes too. Like, I'm not going to have somebody who's ridiculously, um, uncomfortable, even at the mention of the word sex. Um, that's just not going to be the case, uh, more than likely in my classes. And the worst that I've ever had in terms of on an official, um, You know, course evaluation at the end of the semester. I think it was a health psychology class, or just general health psychology. Um, He didn't like that I didn't talk about Christianity enough, and that I was talking about health, and specifically sexual health in one lecture, just from a value-free perspective. Um, He didn't like that. So, I mean, that's I didn't really view that as criticism that I would need to change my teaching methods or anything. He just wanted the class to align with his worldview. And it wasn't because I'm trying to align the class with a broad worldview for everybody so they feel uh, comfortable. This isn't Christian health psychology class. Uh, So that was just one student out of eight years of teaching, uh, thousands of students. And so that's the, the most that I've ever gotten actually on campus. The rest has just been from, you know, non-students, um, trolling me online.
2: Where do the ideas of, like, the Christian sexual values come from? Is it just control, or is there more to it?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I could probably spend, like, 20 hours kind of exploring, (laughs) like, all of that. Um... Well, what was interesting historically? I, uh, I wish I'm, I'm really bad at book titles, remembering them to, to mention um, on interviews like this. But I'll there Google was, for you. Go. Okay. <laughs> There's this really good book that um, kind of pointed out that how, at least, Christianity in the United States and its relationship to sex exists currently, which is the reality, and that's our culture. It didn't have to be that way. Those were decisions made by early church leaders. Um, to be very anti-sex and to be very controlling. Um, and one was the, the typical case, too, of one being, com- quote-unquote, out of control with their own personal sexual behavior and then changed that around into a complete 180 and now wanted to be very controlling of not only their own personal sexuality, but thought that was the, the way to get closer to God, is to distance oneself from our physicality in order to be more spiritual, to almost like overcome uh, the flesh, overcome these sexual urges, that these are more part and aligned with worldly pursuits, earthly pursuits, and that's associated with devil worship and Satanism. That's the the king of our world. Um, So we need to like overcome all of that in order to be a better spiritual person. And that really kind of aligns with abstinence and celibacy that we need to restrict ourselves because uh, these are more like um, pursuits of the physical world, and we need to rise above that.
2: Well, you can't spell overcome without come, and that <laughs> that's the to transcendence.
1: Right, yeah, that's the take-home <laughs> message from this.
0: <laughs> I do know some people, though, that are... Um, I, I went to school with someone who's a, a deacon's wife um, and was in the human sexuality program that I was doing, and it, it was interesting to see the sex positivity and the overlaps and sort of the reinterpretation of certain biblical verses of giving permission to enjoying sex. I mean, I guess it was sort of limited to like sex with your partner or sex when you're married, but mm-hmm. it was, I don't know, just challenging some of the the age old views around celibacy um, mm-hmm. and the, that you shouldn't enjoy like pleasures of the flesh um, cause I, right. yeah, I do think it's about like how we interpret the word in some ways. Yeah. I mean, some are like blatant, like don't do this, but there's so many interpretations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Bible can be whatever you want it to be. And so it's just whoever has power in, in any given period of time of taking that interpretation and making it into public policy and really incorporating it into our cultural beliefs, um, but yeah, yeah. So I, I think there there can be greater sex positive, sex positivity I even mean, within Christianity. Uh, I think my only criticism of that movement, if you can call it a movement, is that it's still very prescriptive. It may just kind of widen the goalposts a little bit of what is permissible uh, sexuality or sexual behavior, but it's still pretty prescriptive. Of like, if you want to be a good sexual person, do X, Y, and Z. Don't do these things. Even though the things that are prohibited don't really have much of a a logical reason to be prohibited. Um, And so that's my only critique of more of a a sex-positive approach to Christianity. It's still very prescriptive.
0: I don't know if you currently see clients in addition to your your teaching and your research, but... Something yep. that I've struggled—you don't?
1: Not anymore. I, I did um, fall semester this past year. I was on sabbatical just to do clinical work. Um, but oh, nice! Since the start of spring semester, I'm not seeing any uh, clients currently.
0: Well, I don't know if you experienced this when you were seeing clients, and maybe it was <laughs> self-selecting, and that like if people looked you up, they wouldn't come see you. But I certainly do get a lot of folks who are um, religious. One of my offices is in a very like primarily Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And something that I struggle with is, of course, I'm sex positive, and I approach things from a non-judgmental standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also try to give space for people's, you know, religious preferences in the work mm-hmm. that we do. Because if it's important to them, it needs to be important in the work. So right. struggling to find the balance between mm. helping folks feel mm-hmm. better. And destigmatize sexuality and sexual preferences, while also respecting their religiosity if their religiosity is like in direct um, conflict mm-hmm. with how I would talk to them about sexuality.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's the the thing related to what I was talking about earlier of being um, not necessarily misunderstood, or maybe just the assumption that what I say on Twitter is also what. Um, I say in my classrooms and like the tone that I have too. And that's not the case. It's separate. Same thing when I was doing therapy. I mean, that's just ethical therapy of, you know, respecting the autonomy of, of your client or patient and whatever values and beliefs that they have. Even when I would have a client um, who's gay identified and really struggling with that identity and sexual behaviors that they were desiring because of their religion. Of being very anti-LGBT, uh, um, but so th- so they had this conflict. And in my mind, I'm thinking, "We'll just drop the religion, and you'll be fine." Um, mm-hmm. But that's not ethical therapy. That's me saying, you know, have these values instead. And so then mm-hmm. the, the, the ethical therapy would be trying to reconcile this difference and how can this person find peace with their identity and their desires with um, also, their spiritual worldview, and how can those two come a little bit closer together than they are now? That's creating all this distress for them. That's just ethical therapy. Um, so that would be the other thing I would I would worry about: if people making assumptions of what they see me posting politically online. That I'm also pushing that political agenda, like on therapy patients, and that's that's certainly not the case because that's unethical, and I would lose my license, and rightfully so.
0: I think some old school. Therapists though would argue that like because we're on social media now that there's mm-hmm. no way that it that our biases maybe can't come in the room because sure. obviously everyone or not everyone but a lot of people have a computer or have Twitter and so they could look and see so even if it's not being brought into the room like folks can look at our social media and make assumptions or wonderings about our preferences or who we are outside of the room.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that will go into some selection that potential clients and patients would have of selecting a therapist. Um, and, I, and I think that balanced itself out because, you know, I've thought about that of like, could that be damaging um, for any type of therapy practice I would ever want to have um, if people were just making assumptions based on my therapeutic style, based on my tweets? And mm. but at the same time, I was like, yeah, that, that could be the case. And people may want to come see me as a therapist based on what they've seen online because they would think that I would be more affirming or validating for them uh, than maybe other therapists, especially if they had, have had negative experiences with therapists in the past, being judgmental about who they are as a sexual being. I know for myself, like personally, when I've looked for a therapist, um, it was really important that... Um, The the therapist uh, had a visible tattoo. I mean, I wasn't looking for that specifically, but that was appealing to me because I have a lot of tattoos, especially when I wear short sleeves. And I've had judgment from healthcare providers uh, from that. And I was like, well, I don't really want that in the therapy space. And so, they have a visible tattoo. They were comfortable enough to put that as part of their professional photo. I think they will. You know, this will be a non-issue for them. And so that was just something I didn't have to worry about extra in terms of like any type of stigma management, uh, being a client uh, within therapy. So I think it can be a positive too.
0: Maybe the Satanic Temple should make a, you know, Satan-friendly therapist list.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. Um, there's definitely a secular therapist uh, directory. So yeah, you get specific oh, to the Satanic one too.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been eye-opening. Petifying, um if- Truly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, if you want people to find you, um, where can they look?
1: Um, really, just Twitter at Dr. Sprankle. I do have a, a website, drsprankle.com, but I haven't even looked at that in like a year or so. <laughs> I'm not so who knows what's on there. Or, yeah, I mean, don't know if it, I've been renewed. Um, so yeah, just Twitter. That's usually where I'm the most active. Um, and we'll link things, other things I may be doing. Um, on that platform.
2: Yeah, if you don't follow Dr. Sprinkle's Twitter, you absolutely should because it's very incisive and brilliant.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that.
2: I mean that sincerely. Thank you so fucking much for joining us. This was truly, truly awesome. Um, as always, if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing, you can find us on Instagram at and scholars on Twitter at scholars, and you can email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com.